this morning as we get to open up God's Word once again and take a look at the book of Hebrews as we continue in our study through the book of Hebrews examining just how great Jesus is. That's kind of the theme of this whole book. The writer, as we said a couple weeks ago, we don't know who the actual author of Hebrews was, but we do know the one thing he was trying to communicate to all of his readers at that time and us as well is that Jesus is greater. No matter what you may put out there, you may put on the pedestal, Jesus is greater. You have a great job, Jesus is greater. You've got a great idol, Jesus is greater. In fact, think for a minute about the idols, those things, people we look up to. What are some of the things, some of, who's some of the people that we look up to in our lives, people who may influence us in our lives? Some people like to read Tony Robbins, right? The self-help guru. You just make yourself better. Maybe uh, we like to you emulate Abraham Lincoln or some political figure in the past, Ronald Reagan. Maybe you like sports figures, Michael Jordan. And he was big in my day. I love Michael Jordan, love his character, love what he, he spoke about. But of course, nobody tops Han Solo when it comes to people in this world, right? Han Solo is kind of the peak there. But what about in a spiritual context? In a spiritual context, what are some of the people that we, we like to emulate? And we got Billy Graham, of course, right? He's like, oh, if I could just be like Billy Graham. He's kind of the pinnacle of Mother Teresa. These people who seek, they're just holier than holy in our, in our mindset. What about your pastor? Or maybe your spouse, or your pastor's spouse. Now there's one you need to emulate. What about that podcast preacher that you like to listen to, or the celebrity preacher that you see on TV or hear on the radio or listen to on your computer? What about your old discipleship leader, somebody that helped to teach you and train you to bring you along in your faith? I remember when I was in high school, Jimmy Stewart. I still keep in touch with him. I was a 10th grader, 11th grader, just learned how to drive. And I would drive to our, our team, our, our Bible study. And for like a year, I sat under his teaching. He's the one who first gave me, even though I was going to youth group, I had a youth pastor. Jimmy had such an impact in my life and gave me a love for God's word for my time there. What about some missionary hero? You know, we were missionaries for 20 years, and so we've read about and studied all these missionaries. And we have looked up to many of them. We have ones that are alive and some that are dead that we look up to and try to emulate like, there's just no way I can reach to become like that person. See, the Jews were kind of like that too. The Jews had their own idols. They had their own, and one was Moses. Moses was one they always looked back to, right? He was the one who received the law from God. He was the one who led the children out of Egypt across the wilderness to the promised land and they were always looking forward to trying to get into the promised land for years and years and years and they always wanted to ask themselves well, what would Moses do in this situation you know as I was becoming a new father a new husband the question I always asked myself was what would my dad do you know the old saying WWJD what would Jesus do I used to ask myself WWDD what would my dad do in this situation? How would he respond? How would he 
treat his kids? How would he treat his wife? How would he react in business? What would my dad do? I really emulate my dad. But as the Jews looked up to Moses as their example, the writer of Hebrews here in chapter 3 is really trying to nail down the fact that Jesus is greater, not just of the angels, as we talked about last week and of other things, he is greater than Moses, your greatest spiritual leader, that one that you look up to, you emulate, you want to, you revere. So Jesus is greater than Moses. Look with me in, in Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3 this morning, as we, we're kind of going to read through this chapter together. We're going to read through and kind of go back and break it down some of it. So here in Hebrews chapter 3, is the writer of Hebrews is talking about how Jesus is greater than Moses. Then we're going to look at how that applies to us here today. So follow along with me. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1. It says, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, you who share in the heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who is faithful to him and who appointed him just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus had been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory than the builder of the house, for more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. It says, Now Moses was faithful in all of God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. So what is the writer here saying about our faith as it relates to Moses? What's he saying there about Jesus as it relates to how the people revered and looked up to this spiritual leader? Now, I'm not trying to downplay Moses. I'm not trying to say he was not worthy to be looked up to and emulated by the people at that time. What the writer is saying, what I'm saying here this morning, is Jesus is worthy of so much more. Right. He is worthy to be lifted up and glorified. We sing these songs this morning, not just because we like to sing pretty songs or listen to pretty voices on the stage. That's why I'm not up here, by the way, because they want pretty voices, not me. Mm -hmm. We want to sing these songs so that Jesus Christ is emulated, so that his name is lifted up, so he is brought into glory. So he is lifted up above all that we have. So we can shout it out to the world. And we want the people around us, and this is what the writers say too, we want the people around him as well to recognize that Jesus is greater than all. He wants to emphasize the supremacy of Christ by talking about him as one of the most important heroes. It's not, it's not wrong to have Moses as a hero. It's not wrong to have Billy Graham as a hero. It's not wrong to have some other person as your spiritual leader as a hero. But Jesus is so much greater than all of those. He is the epitome. He is what all everyone else is shooting toward. I know you put your pastor up on the pedestal. Okay? I stand up here. You think I'm just all holy and high and mighty. My kids can be quiet in the back. But as, as, as perfect as your pastor, maybe your pastor or other leaders have ever been, our goal as well 
every discipleship leader, every Billy Graham, every other pastor that's been out there, their goal as well, if they're anything worth their salt, is to reach for Christ, to become like Christ. We cannot get satisfied just with our little kingdom and with our bit of knowledge in scripture, with our trying to attain holiness and righteousness, we have to recognize as well that we are not where God wants us to be. I've been a Christian now since I was seven years old. 1976-ish, somewhere in that range, I became a believer. And I've been growing and growing and growing. And every year, every month, every day of the month, this book becomes more and more precious to me. Because I'm striving to become like my idol. Jesus. I want to become like him. I want the world not to see David Edder. I want the world to see Christ in me. In my attitude, in my character, in the way I live my life. If I look at verse 5, look what it says here in verse 5. The writer here says, and talking about Moses, says, now Moses was faithful in all of God's house. How? As a servant. To testify to the things that were to be spoken of later. And I know that's Moses up there, right? <laughs> Moses was faithful in all of God's house as a servant. He was the greatest. He's one of the greatest men who's ever lived. In fact, God said there is no one greater that's been born a man than Moses. He has been called the most humble person that's ever lived. Where Solomon was the wisest, Moses was the most humble. But even Moses was just considered a servant, a caretaker. Of God's house he wasn't an owner he wasn't the builder he was just a caretaker of what God had given to him he was faithful servant but still no match for Jesus if the two are in a competition Jesus wins hands down they're put side by side yeah there's no, there's no even comparison the glory of Jesus just poof, how it shines and Moses would agree and if Jesus walked in the room, he would told him to take a step back and say, it's not about me, it's about him. John the Baptist said, I must become, he must become greater, I must become lesser. He understood. He was revered as a prophet in his time, but he understood. My cousin's got to step forward and become the greatest. I must take a step back and diminish. Verse 6, the writer says here, he says in comparing him to Jesus to Moses, he said, but Christ was faithful over God's house as a son, not as a servant, but as a son. And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast to our confidence and our boasting and our hope. Jesus Christ is the owner of the house. And who's the house? What is the Savior? We are the house. We are the house of God. We are the temple of God. The, when you become a believer, God takes up residence within us. And begins building for himself a new house, a new temple. All the old things, all those old character qualities we had that were there before, all that old attitudes we had, all that old sinfulness that was there, God was slowly removing them from his house, getting rid of them. Much like we do when every springtime comes around and you go around the outside of your house and you're cleaning off the bugs and you're cleaning out all the, the spiders and the cobwebs and all the icky stuff you may find around the house that's taken residence in there over the winter time. Two winters ago, we had 24 mice in our garage. 
We had an infestation of mice. When springtime came, we'd laid out traps and we'd put out poison during the wintertime. When springtime came, I was getting rid of the debris, getting rid of the, I took them to my neighbor's house across the street and let them do it. But we are the building of God. We are the house of God. And he is taking up residence in us as the master builder. Jesus is the son. He takes up faithful, it says here, Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, not as a servant, not just as a caretaker, not someone just managing the building. He views us with ownership. When we got this building four years ago, I was out here one day and the, the previous church, the pastor from the previous church is, was, was a good friend of mine. He came over and we were talking one day and we were kind of walk, just walking around. And I, I reached out and picked up some trash and picked up some of this and I kind of moved some things around. And he's like, wow, you, you've, you've really taken ownership of this. I said, yeah, this is God's house. This is what God has given to us. And I want it to look nice. I don't want to leave trash on the ground. I don't want it to look sloppy. We want it to be as beautiful as possible so that when the world around us sees what God has given to us, they're not turned off by a little piece of trash or a wrapper or, or cans or fireworks or whatever may be out there on the ground. It's up to us to take care of it. So I was while we were just picking up stuff, treating this place as an owner, not as a caretaker. If you just rent some place, you're just a caretaker for a while. But the owner comes over and he sees things that you don't. And he wants to make sure things are taken care of, things are done properly. That you're having his house is taken care of. And you're just renting, you just it's not you don't have any personal stake in it. So Jesus has a personal stake in our growth. Jesus has a personal stake in our development as a child of God. He has a personal stake in seeing us succeed and become more like him. So when he takes up residence in us as a son, as the owner, as the builder. We are the house. We are the house of God. He wants to show us off. That's why it's important that as we have these, these people that we idolize, these people that we look up to, that we don't, we don't give them the same place to speak into our lives as we give Jesus. It's okay to listen to Tony Robbins. It's okay to listen to Michael Jordan. It's okay to listen to Billy Graham and your pastor and all these others. But we are nothing compared to Jesus. Our words are nothing. We, are, we speak human words, hopefully, that, that are the Holy Spirit speaking through us. But it's, my words are just my words. Jesus' words have so much more power and validity in our lives. We need to be careful when we're receiving advice from people. Understand that they're not the owners of our lives. Jesus has a stake in our lives. Jesus has a stake in us to see and want us to become more like him. So when the Jews looked up to Moses and lift him up as the pinnacle, the writer of Hebrews is saying, wait, Jesus is greater. And remember, he's writing this to Jewish believers primarily at that time. So they were still living in the, in the, in the law and they were revering Abraham and Moses. And so he's writing to them saying, it's okay to do that. But understand, Jesus is greater. And then he goes on in verse 12. We're going to skip a section and go back in a few minutes. He goes on in verse 12. And he says, I want to 
and exhort you to endure to the end. This faith that you're developing, this faith that is growing within you, what you are receiving from Jesus, endure to the end. Don't give up. Follow with me here in verse 12 through 19. He says, take care, brothers. Take care, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leaving you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come, for we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who are those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? This one that they revered, right? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of their unbelief. So the writer here is exhorting the, his readers, he's exhorting these Hebrew believers, he said, it's great to revere Moses, it's all great and good and fine to understand what it is that Moses taught, but you need to make sure you're persevering to the end. Don't give up. Don't stop in your journey until you get to the end, until you see Jesus face to face. Don't stop what you're doing. Keep going, keep going, keep going. Keep persevering to the very end. Look at verse 12. He says here, he says, take warning, take care. Listen to what I'm about to tell you. Place. It says, lest there be in you any evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. He says, take care. Take this warning. Don't be aware of where your heart is leading. Be aware of the sin in our own lives. Because the sin in our lives could lead us potentially away from your belief. Now understand, I'm not saying you can lose your salvation. I'm not saying that once you truly believe, you can wander so far away that you lose your salvation. I firmly believe that once you are a believer, God holds you in his hand, and the Bible says nothing can be removed from his hand. But there are cases where people make a profession of faith, where they claim the name of Christ, and you see this in the parable of the sower. And it's, it's good and it's fine, and we all rejoice, and they're excited for a short time, and then the thistles come up and the cares of the world come up and they go back to their old ways. And that shows that true faith never set in. They just spoke words. They just said a prayer. And the true believing faith never really set in. See, as Moses led the children of Israel from Egypt to the promised land, they knew, and Moses kept saying, there's a promised land out there. We're going to go to Canaan, and God's going to lead us to the land of milk and honey. It's going to be awesome. It's going to be wonderful. They get right up to the border of the Jordan River, and the rest of God is waiting for them on the other side. They send in the 12 spies. The 12 spies come back, and 10 of them go, oh, 
It's too big. The people, the walls are massive. The people are too huge. They've got big machines, got big machine guns. We can't fight. All we're using is a Swiss Army knife, and they've got big machetes and bazookas. We can't do it. And two of the spies said, wait, 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 wait. God's brought us here. He's going to see it to completion. But what did the people do? Who did they listen to? They listened to the timber. If their faith had been strong, if their belief had been sure, they would have listened to the two and trusted, said, God has brought us here. God's going to get us over the river. God's going to get in there and take us to what he promised and give us what he promised. But because of their unbelief, it showed their lack of faith, true faith. And then the next 40 years, they spent going in circles in the desert. For 40 years. Until all those of that generation died off. So all those who did not believe in that generation did not get to go in and experience the rest that God had promised them. The promised land that God had promised them because of their unbelief. So the writer here is saying, beware of your unbelieving heart. Beware of just going through the religious motions, of just coming to church on Sunday because you've always come to church on Sunday, of just doing those things but not having a true believing faith and yet also being led away by your sinful heart. And verse 13, he goes on to tell us, how do we combat an unbelieving heart? How do we combat? How do we defeat that unbelieving heart? Look what he says in verse 13. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by deceitfulness of sin. Exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, all day long. What is tomorrow called? Tomorrow, until we get there, then it's today. What is the next day called? Day after tomorrow, until we get there, then it's called today. So. Every day we should be encouraging one another and challenging one another, sending text messages, sending emails, calling one another, seeing people in church, and exhorting and encouraging one another to live strong in the faith, to stay at the task in front of you. Don't give up. Keep believing. If God promised it, believe it. If he said you're going to go to the promised land, be willing to step over that Jordan River into the promised land. God promises it, he is going to bring it to fruition. So we need to be able to make sure we are encouraging one another daily. Don't wait until tomorrow. Don't wait until tomorrow. I saw Mike was really discouraged today, but man, I got a lot on my plate today. I'm, just, I'm sure he'll be okay till tomorrow. Don't wait. See, we, as the body of Christ, we need one another. We need the encouragement from one another. We need to be challenged by one another. There's a reason why we come together for worship together. Did you notice that for the five, was it 12 weeks that we were out and we didn't meet together? Church was just different. It was just different. Online was great, but it was just different. It was different for me because I was sitting there managing the, the online video stream, watching myself preaching on the TV, and hearing all my kids' comments. Dad, why'd you say that? Dad, why'd you say that? Dad, why'd you say that? Usually I get to hear it on my way home from church, but I got to hear it as the stream was going on. But church was just different. 
now that we're back to meeting together and our kids are over there worshiping and, and studying together, there's a, a power that takes place. There's a strength that takes place as the body of Christ comes together to grow together, to worship together, to study together. There's something special that takes place as we meet together. Colossians 3.16 says this. He says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, with singing psalms and hymns and spiritual psalms, with thankfulness in your hearts to God, together. Encouraging one another together. Albert Moore says it this way. He says, immersing oneself in the community of saints, in the care and watchfulness of the local church, in the preaching of God's word, in the exhortation of fellow believers, remedies all remedies an evil, unbelieving heart. These things protect us from falling away. There's something special, something not magical, but spiritual that takes place as we meet together to encourage one another to challenge one another as we sing together, as we read God's word together, as we pray together, as we take the Lord's Supper together, as we bump elbows together or shake hands, as we do these things together, something special takes place. And we grow together. And it helps to keep us for one more week out of the hands of Satan. To keep us, to let us know that when I've got trouble, when it's my life, when my kids are driving me nuts, when something is going on, there's somebody else in our church, in our congregation, I can call and say, would you pray for me? I can put a note, I can call Stephanie at the church office and leave a message and say, would you get the pastor, get the message to the pastor and let him pray for me? Would you let somebody else know that I need help, I need strength, I'm going through a week and a week time in my life right now, and I need somebody to come alongside and pray and be with me to encourage me. That's the body of Christ. What does the unbelieving heart look like? Simply it's just someone who's, whose heart's been hardened by sin. We've all been there. We've all been there. Our heart's hardened by sin. I want what I want more than I want what God wants for me. I want to live my life my way rather than live my life God's way. We've all been there, even as believers. We let our heart get hardened for a short time. But then as we come together and we exhort one another, we encourage one another, hopefully it gets softened up. See, the Old Testament describes that hardened heart as a terminal disease, which ultimately only God can heal. Ezekiel 36, 26 says it this way. And he says, I will give you a new heart. This is God talking. He says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put in you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of stone, rather, and give you a heart of flesh. God says, I will take that hard heart of yours and make it soft. He does that many times through the body of Christ. Coming alongside and saying, No, I've missed seeing you for the past week. I've missed hearing your voice. I've missed hearing your songs. I've missed seeing that bright smile. I have missed you. And we come together to be challenged to live a life that is honored to God. In verse 14, he goes on. He says, we need to make sure that we're maintaining our original confession of the gospel. That will help keep us from sin. 
Remember how excited we got when you first became a Christian? Remember what it was like? I still remember. Seven-year-old little boy, I still remember sitting there, going to the back room of my children's church classroom, praying with my children's church teacher, no idea what his name was, praying with him, walking out of children's church that day when my parents picked me up, and looking out, and the sky looked different. I don't know why that is such a vivid picture in my mind, but I remember being excited about this new faith in Jesus that I had. I remember being ecstatic that life looked differently. My outlook on life looked differently because now I was going to go to heaven. I was not struck. I was not stuck in my sins. I was going to go to heaven when I died. I was excited about that. And I wanted to tell my parents. And I wanted to tell my friends. My outlook on life changed. Verse 14. Listen, he says, For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold to our original confession, firm to the end. That belief in Jesus, constant belief, that excitement that takes place as you recognize that my sins are no longer going to be held against me. This new life I'm living, I can rejoice, I can be excited now because of what God has done for me. Because of what Jesus did for me. First Peter, verse 1 Peter says here, he says, For who by God's power and being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. So ultimately, we can't keep it to ourselves. God keeps us in his hand is what that means. We aren't keeping ourselves firm to the end. God is keeping us in his hand. I talked about that a minute ago. And it is God who's going to be the one who brings us to completion, who brings us to maturity. Ultimately, it is God's work in our life that brings us to that point of maturity. I can be studying, but I can't do it myself. God is going to orchestrate our lives and put us in situations and bring us into churches and put us in Bible studies and put us in sometimes frustrating situations to bring us to that point of completion and maturity so that we become more like him. Philippians 1.6 says it this way. I am sure of this, Paul says. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. That's one of the ways we know we are truly God's child. Are you satisfied with where you are spiritually? If the answer is no, then good. Because that means that God's doing the work because we are not where we need to be yet. If you're sad, if you're sitting around and go, I'm good, I've got it all together. I know as much of the Bible as I need to know. I go to church enough, I go, I've got just as enough of Jesus as I need. There's a problem. That shows that a hard heart is kicking in. But when you're excited, you recognize, I'm not where I need to be yet. And I'm your pastor. And I'm not where I need to be yet. I can, don't ask my kids. I can tell you, I'm not where I need to be yet. I've got a long way to go. 51 years old. I pray that the next 10, 20, 30, 40 years until God calls me home, that my excitement for him, my excitement for his word, my excitement to delve in, to understand who is God, never fades. I want to know him and make him known to all those around us. I want to dig into his word and understand the inner workings of God's mind. 
love him. Verse 15 through 18 goes into a section here where it's just warnings. The author is saying, are you going to be like the children of Israel? Who got all the way to the edge of the Jordan River? Are you going to be like those who got all the way there, who were led by Moses? You got right up to the edge and your unbelief came out. True unbelief came out. Or are you going to be like those who came out of the wilderness 40 years later and you enter into the promised land and enter into the rest? See, the writer is equating those with unbelief as those who were, had gone through the rebellion against God, who stood up to Moses and said, No, you are not going to be our leader anymore. You know what happened to them? They were swallowed up. Literally the ground opened up and they fell in. They disappeared. 14,700 people died. Because they rejected God's leadership through Moses. Their unbelief showed. And they were spoken of several times. And we read, read about there in verse 15. Numbers 20, 13 talks about it. It says, And these are the waters of Meribah, where the people of Israel quarreled with the Lord, and he showed himself holy. He showed himself holy. And God is concerned about his holiness, and he's not going to allow anything to confront his holiness. He's concerned about the holiness in our lives as well. See, the Israelites committed many sins in the wilderness, but only one prevented them entry into the promised land. They were a sinful people. They committed sin after sin after sin, but only one sin prevented them from going into the promised land. Their unbelief. God was willing to overlook the golden calf, the rebellion, the griping, the grumbling, the complaining, all of that, but their unbelief showed their true nature of their heart. Verse 19, the writer says, So we see there that they were unable to enter because of their unbelief. It demonstrates a need for us to persevere in our faith until the very end. Again, it is God who brings us to completion. It is God who's going to bring us that. It is God who's going to hold us firm. The faithless will not enter God's rest, and the faithful hold firmly until the end. We all know people who made a profession of faith when they were younger, said they believed, but then walked away. It shows that their faith was not really true. Their unbelief rose to the surface. So what is it that, what is this rest that we're speaking about? What does it mean to find our rest in Christ? What does it mean to find our ultimate rest in Christ? That's what God was bringing them through the wilderness. God was bringing the Israelites through all of the struggles and temptations and trials to take them into the rest. What is he talking about here? Look in verse 7, back in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7. As we backtrack just a hair. He says, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, 
I think about it now, on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. And I swore my wrath, they will not enter my rest. And then in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 11, he says, Therefore, let us strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. So we have a life ahead of us. It's not easy. There are temptations, there are trials, there are struggles that we go through that God is using in our lives to orchestrate and direct us, each of us differently and each of us separately, to bring us more like him, to make us more Christ-like. And if you give up and walk away, you're like the Israelites who came through all of that desert right up to the edge of the Jordan. And then the true unbelief showed. The true unbelief showed. God's plan has always been about bringing us into his eternal rest. God has always been about redeeming mankind back to himself. He says, here I am. Life with me, with me is awesome. Life with me in heaven is going to be wonderful. You'll have a time of rest. You'll have a time of just peace. He is welcoming of any who will come to him. But man's rebellion has been what's kept us out. It's man's rebellion and our unbelief. So here we have God's rest contrasted with man's rebellion. God's rest in him for all of eternity contrasted with man's rebellion for the past several thousand years. It's that rebellion that shows their true belief. So what is it in verse 11 here? That is, what is God's rest in this passage? Historically, it was the land beyond the Jordan River. That's what we just talked about. That's where the Hebrews are trying to get to. They're trying to get into that promised land. That God swore that those who didn't believe would not see. Eschatology or the future things tells us it's the future rest, we, the rest that we will experience in the new creation with God. That is the rest that we will all get to experience, those who are God's children, as we stand before God face to face. He says, why should I let you into my heaven? And we say, because I believe in, in Jesus Christ, the Son of God who was died for my sins. And redeemed me back into you as to one of your children. And then he says, welcome into your rest. That new creation that we have to get to experience. But metaphorically, rest in Scripture also refers to God's blessings of safety, security, and salvation right here and right now. Next week, as we get into Hebrews chapter 4, we'll look at how Jesus Christ is our Sabbath rest. It's not just that one day a week. He wants to be our Sabbath rest every single day of the week. It's not just a place, but the person of Jesus Christ, most fundamentally, who gives us the rest. I know we're all tired. We've been struggling for the last several months with this stinking pandemic, fighting through it together, trying to get on with life, 
Jesus says there's rest waiting. Let him use this time to mold you more into his image. Use this time to spend more time in his word. Use this time to come alongside other believers and exhort one another in Christ, to exhort one another, to become more like him, to exhort one another and to encourage one another to set aside those sinful things in our lives, which Satan wants to use to discourage us, keep us pushed down. Some key takeaways today as we close up. In what practical ways can you encourage brothers and sisters in your church to persevere in their faith? What practical ways can you encourage others in this church to persevere in their faith? Number two, do you regularly confess your sin or your weaknesses to other brothers and sisters in your church as a means of as a means of preventing a hardening of the heart? See, as we come together, one of the reasons we have our, our Bible study small groups is so that we can begin to get to more, know one another better. We can draw closer together as friends, and then I'm comfortable sharing my weakness with somebody else. The very first time you meet somebody. It's like social media. You put up your best face, right? Facebook, Twitter, we all get to see the best of everybody. But we know that's not true. We know there are days that I'm weak. There are days that, and weeks that I don't want to get into God's Word. There are times I want to sit up and just do my own thing. To live my life my way. As we come together in our Bible studies, we come together in our small groups, we get to know one another better. And then that comfortability level is there where I can go to somebody in my small group and say, would you pray for me? Would you pray for me? Because I'm really struggling with spending time in God's Word. I'm really struggling with this sin in my life. I'm really struggling with whatever it may be. My kids are driving me crazy. My wife is driving me crazy. Grandkids, they never drive me crazy. I'm really struggling. It's important. Do we regularly confess our sins and our weaknesses to others to prevent the hardening of our hearts? Number three, does the miracle of our rebirth still ignite our affection for Christ? Or have we simply just gotten accustomed to it? Has that time, that instance, where you bowed your knee, you bowed your head, and you said, Jesus, I'm yours. I'm going to follow you from this day forward. Does that experience still ignite a sense of awe and wonderment in your life as you recognize, my sins are gone. Jesus has totally transformed me from the inside out. Or has it just become commonplace, like you're going to a job? Again, every day for the next 40 years. Number four, are we spent, do you spend time reflect? Would you spend time literally reflecting? You spec that up and start again. Spend time reflecting on the reality that you had at the start. 
to which the author in, in verse 14 refers to. What, is, what is, is the significance of the word if in verse 14? I'll read it to you again. It says, for we have come to share in Christ. If indeed we hold to our original confidence firm to the end. Reflect on the reality that you had at the start. And what does that word if mean to you? And lastly, have you considered beginning your relationship with Jesus or in deepening your current relationship? See, because that's where it starts. If you're sitting here this morning, either in our in our worship service or watching online, and you've not begun your relationship with Jesus, maybe you're just putting your toe in the water, saying, I'm just I want to check this thing out. I want to hear what this is all about. You put your toe in the water. You're not ready to jump to that. Jump in. I want you to know jumping in is the best decision you'll ever make. Jump in. The water's fine. Jesus is there waiting. With open arms. Come to the altar. Or maybe you've been here this morning, you've been a believer for a number of years. And you the sense of awe and wonderment about your salvation has just kind of become commonplace. And you're at a point now where you say, I need to deepen in my walk. I need to deepen my relationship with Jesus. Because I want him to become greater. I want him to become the greatest. Where are you this morning? Where are you this morning? Have you bow your heads and close your eyes just for a minute? Have you think about those five takeaways? As we think about those things, where are you this morning? What decision would God have you made this morning? Maybe it's talking to somebody else that you're comfortable here at church. And say, I need your prayers, I need your help. Could be a music pastor, it could be somebody else. Maybe you need to start that relationship with Jesus this morning. And if that's you, if that's if that's your case with you, I'm going to pray a quick prayer this morning. I want you to repeat after me. If you desire to begin the relationship with Jesus this morning, repeat this prayer after me, after me. Lord Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. I've messed up over and over and over again. And I need your help. I need your forgiveness. So Jesus, this morning, I ask you to forgive me of my sins and let me start this new life with you as one of your children. I invite you to take up residence in my life to begin building your home in me. I know that means sacrifice. I know that means submission. But I'm willing to give it up and follow you from this day forward. So Jesus, count me as one of yours. One of your children. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. If you prayed that prayer for the very first time today, let us know. 